Today's scripture reading is from Roman chapter 8, verses 28 through 39. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's lovely to be worshiping with you on this beautiful spring day. Isn't it amazing outside? I can't wait to get out and start riding bike again. The winter has not been kind to me, so I need to get out there. Um, let's take a moment, and I'll leave that there. Will I leave that there? I'm going to move this out of the way so I don't trip over it. Let's take a moment and just pray uh, before we get started. Our Heavenly Father, we need your presence. We need your help as we read and as we pray and as we listen to your word. We, uh, we need you so much with everything that we are. There's nothing in us that would draw us to you, and yet you've come for us and you've rescued us. And so we ask us that you would reveal more of the certainty of the salvation that you've given us, more of the glory, more of your greatness, more of your love. Do that now for us as we look at your word together through your Holy Spirit. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, we're we're winding it up. We've been uh, one of the things that we've been asking is how to live out of the wonders of the love that God has shown us in the gospel. We've been given such great privilege through His grace, through His peace, through His um, rescue of us. When we were far from God, he brought us near to him. And that, those facts, have everything to do with the way that we live together in community. Have uh, everything to do with the kinds of commands that are in scripture because of the gospel for what it should look like for us. And so we've been looking at relationship and we've been drawing closer together through that relationship and uh, we've been uh, relying on the gospel more deeply in relationship, and we have a couple of uh, 
passages left, this is the, the one of two passages left in a 14-part series that we've been looking at. And uh, this week, we're going to look at the benefits God provides us through Jesus' work on our behalf in the gospel. His provision. His provision for us. What does he provide for us? So that we might grow closer together in relationship. That we might reflect his character in the way that we practically love one another. One of the things that I thought was helpful as I prepared and prayed through the passage for this week is uh, John Stott's arrangement of the passage. And he notices this in this passage is very, it's very rich and we're only going to be able to touch on pieces as we go, but we'll, we'll try the best that we can. Uh, but he arranges it this way and we'll be making use of it throughout. This is verse 28, we see unshakable convictions. Verse 28, we see unshakable convictions. Verses 29 through 30, we see undeniable affirmations. Undeniable affirmations. And then verses 31 through 39, we see unanswerable questions. All right? So unshakable convictions, undeniable affirmations, unanswerable questions. First, unshakable convictions. Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now first, before we understand that this passage, let me say, this verse in particular, verse 28, has been likened to a pillow upon which we can rest our weary heads in the faith of of Jesus in the gospel. Why? Why has it been likened to a pillow that we can rest on? Before we understand that, we have to understand that there are common... There's a common struggle with this verse. What is it? What's the common struggle? All things do not actually work together automatically in themselves into a pattern of good. All things in and of themselves do not automatically work into a pattern of good. I was talking with someone recently recently, and they put it this way. The hard part about this life is that a person who is desperately faithful and obedient in a way that people can't even comprehend. A deep, deep, deep reverence for the Lord. His glory and power are revealed to others through them. Even then, they suffer greatly. Faithfulness and obedience in this life doesn't mean a life without suffering, and that's the hard, scary part. I can't understand why God would allow suffering like that. So we've got to deal with this. Can we grapple for a minute with this common objection. Maybe it's plagued you as you've thought about how to draw closer to Christ and what he's provided for you and let that affect your life and your relationships. Uh, In his book, The Reason for God, Dr. Keller addresses some of the common problems people have about suffering and faith in God. And he does so through a couple of means. He does so through logic and he does so through personal persuasion. So we'll look briefly at a couple of those things that he uses. The logical problem with a common argument against God uh, is this, the, the argument normally goes like this, you know, if the world is filled with a pointless evil, how can there be a good and all-powerful God, right? Here's the way one critic wrote it. If a God and powerful God, if a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil. But because there is so much unjustifiable, pointless evil in the world, the traditional good and powerful God could not exist. Some other God or no God may exist, but not the traditional God. Now, what logicians and philosophers have pointed out, there's a hidden premise in that. You've got to understand what the hidden premise is. So let's think clearly about it for a second. 
The hidden premise is this. If evil appears pointless to me, then it must be pointless. If evil appears pointless to me, then it must be pointless. That shows an enormous faith in your own faculties, in your own understanding, if you're using that kind of argument. And what you're saying is that if our minds can't plumb the depths of the universe for good answers to suffering, well, then there can't be any. There can't be any good answers. That's a fallacy in reasoning. Just because you can't imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there can't be one. Look at Joseph in Genesis. Joseph was a snotty boy. He, he held in arrogance uh, his, who he thought he was and over his brothers. It ticked them all off. They actually pretended they killed him, but they sold him into slavery. He went through tremendous suffering, tremendous isolation. And through that... He became the man to lead all of the world around him through deliverance from the suffering that was to come through the famines that were to come. And it wouldn't have been without that. He says at the end of that story, brothers, he meets his brothers again and he's reconciled with them through the work that God has done in his life. And he says, brothers, what you meant for evil, God's turned into good. He's used it for good, right? Uh, another, another way in, thinking about it, I saw an exercise once that use post-it notes. You get a big piece of cardboard and you put post-it notes in columns on the cardboard. And the post-it notes, the, the ones in yellow are all of the good things in life that have happened. You just put them all, you write them all down and put them all down. And you take some red ones, some red post-it notes, and you write down everything that's gone wrong in your life. Everything that has really hurt. Everything that, is really, that you've really suffered under. And you put them on the board. And then the exercise is to begin to arrange those into columns where uh, there's some chronology to it. Okay, well, this good thing happened before that good thing. And this bad thing happened here, but this bad thing happened later, right? And you do that, and invariably, what was so stunning about that exercise was that you began to notice that at the end of the columns, in the transition to the next column or the next chapter of life, was a red mark. In other words, God, the, the purpose of the exercise was to see how God uses painful moments to transform us into the next chapter, to bring us to the next place of maturity. I'll give you an example from my own life. When I was six, I um, had a friend down the street, Beth Linbar. Beth was great. We listened to records together. My mom had given me her 45 player, and I had uh, her old Jan and Dean records and Beach Boy records. And so I thought this was the coolest thing. You could put it on, and the speaker's right underneath. And we would sit around there and just watch the marvel of the record turning around. Do you know what a record? Have you seen records? <laughs> just don't. I mean, this might. No. Anyway, we were down the street, and we played with some neighborhood kids, and we played together. And uh, often, in those days, you walked to and from school together. It was no big deal. And uh, I was supposed to walk home with her one afternoon, and I couldn't um, for various reasons. And she didn't show up that night. She didn't show up home that night. And she didn't show up the next night, and she was on the news, and there were pictures, and they were looking for her. Three years later, they found her under some leaves in the cemetery two streets above my house, and she had been raped, and she had been stabbed 19 times. And I had no way to process that. I had nobody to help me process that. So what kind of belief do you think I developed? 
I need to protect myself because this world isn't safe, right? And I didn't realize how much I had lived by that belief until the Lord was working in seminary through, we did a self-counseling project through the, through the uh, counseling department there. And this, this kind of thing was being drummed up that I, oh, I hold this belief. Well, that's not, that's counter to the gospel. How's it counter to the gospel? I was trying to process it. And then one night it came home to me in a real way. We were, Anne-Marie and I were in New York and we had a small group in our uh, apartment and our apartment situation then with who we lived next to wasn't the best. There was a woman who was addicted to drugs who lived right next door to us. And uh, she went off the deep end because her boyfriend moved out of the country. And she was prostituting herself to pimps who were coming in. And they were looking at my family in, in threatening ways. And I didn't feel safe. I didn't feel safe. So we're at a small group and we're in the Bible study and we're, we're talking together. And Anne-Marie gets a, f- a call on her phone. And it's a number that she thinks she recognizes, but she lets it go as a voicemail because we're, you know, we're doing the group. And after the group, she says, I'm gonna, I'll call back. I thought I recognized that number. And call, she called back, and it was a guy on the other end, and he was re- talking uh, very inappropriately to her. And so she handed the phone to me, and I, I said, who is this? And he started cursing at me. And I, I felt my blood starting to boil, and I said, look, I have your number. I can give it to the police. Who is this? What are you doing? And he, he cursed at me further, and I hung up. And I tell you, the internal disposition of protecting myself and those who I love around me was such a fervor at that point that had he knocked on the door and been one of the dealers outside, I, it would have been me or him. I was, I was near homicidal. That's how undone I was. And Anne-Marie, in her wisdom, said, you are scarier than the phone call right now. Um, why don't you get our dogs and go for a walk and pray it through? And so I did. And I'm walking and I'm angry and I'm nervous and I'm scared and there are tears rolling down my face and I'm praying to God and I'm saying, Lord, I can't protect them from all of this stuff that's all around us. And he testified to my heart through his spirit, it may be that their life is taken, but they can't be taken from me and they can't be undone eternally because I have them. And in that moment, there was some yielding went on that had never gone on to this very verse and to the suffering that I had experienced. Now, God uses that for good. I see that. In that moment, I saw that. But the problem is that we forget his goodness. We need reminded of this. This is why Paul is writing this. We forget. There have been many times of injustice since those ones I've described to you. Some of them I've had to endure at length. Some of them have been quick and not so lengthy. And when I've faced them, I've had more resources in my identity and what God has done for me rather than what I do. I can't protect myself. God has protected me in Jesus. And I cling to that. And yet I don't cling to that at the same time. One of the things that happened this past week that God was revealing, particularly through a presbytery retreat, where some of the pastors locally got together to pray these issues, uh, into the, the gospel into these issues that each of us has. And I realized that I'm still self-protecting. I still self-protect. Anne-Marie and I had a great conversation. It was about two hours long, where there's a sense where I take through kindness, through 
theological correctness, through, I don't know, attention to details, where I'll take a martial stance as I'm talking, right? My internal organs are turned away from my opponent. And I, you know, this is spiritually speaking, of course, and I'm defending, (laughs) I'm defending through the nice things that I do. And there's a distance that, that she senses where she's trying to draw near to me, but I'm afraid. So that self-protection has its effects in daily life. And I need this verse just as much as you need it. Just because you can't imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there can't be one. I've given you some illustrations of that. The idea here is that with time and perspective, most of us can see good reasons for at least some of the tragedy and pain that occurs in life. Why couldn't that be possible from God's vantage point, that there are good reasons for all of them. Indeed, that's our presupposition as Christians, that God has morally good and sufficient reasons for allowing what he allows. And he doesn't answer all of them for us right now. But he has gone to the cross, and we'll get to that. But not just a logic problem. There's a, there's a personal persuasion issue. There's a refusal to trust God for allowing life to proceed as it, ha- as it has. You know, so there's, you know, if you're going through suffering, and a lot of it, one of the things you might be tempted to say is, okay, I don't care about the logical fallacy bit. That's clever, and maybe that takes away one reason. But God is still not off the hook for allowing the kind of suffering that I see. And what's the answer to that? Jesus in the gospel. Jesus in the gospel. God deliberately came to earth to put himself on the hook for human suffering. And in Jesus Christ, God experienced the greatest depths of pain. Now, Tim, in his book, The Reason for God, in in his chapter on suffering, compares Jesus to the martyrs. And he says, you know, the martyrs, we we have examples of people who have died for the faith. And they had such courage. And they had such vigor. And they stood up for it. And they were silent as they were being cut open or or uh, burned at the stake. And yet he points out that Jesus wasn't like that. He says, Jesus is depicted as profoundly shaken by his impending doom. He says, the gospel writer Mark tells us that he began to be deeply distressed and troubled, saying, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. You can read that in Mark 14. Or Luke describes Jesus before his death as being in agony. And describes a man with all of the signs of being physical in physical shock. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all show Jesus trying to avoid death, asking the Father if there isn't some way out of it. If it be your will, take this cup from me, Jesus cried out. And on the cross, Jesus cried out that God had forsaken him. And one of the important parts that you need to realize about suffering with this promise that we're reading is that God did it as the triune personal God. The Gospel writer John, in his first chapter, introduces us to the mysterious but crucial concept of, as God is tripersonal. The Son of God was not created, but he took part in creation. He took part in creation, and he's lived throughout eternity, John 1.18 tells us, in the bosom of the Father. It's a mysterious thing, the Trinity, and there's a lot of good stuff that can be said about it. There's also mystery, too, and yet what we see in John's presentation of Jesus is the tripersonal God coming. That is, in a relationship of absolute intimacy and love. But at the end of his own life, he was cut off from the Father. Now, there may, 
there's no greater loss than losing somebody you care about deeply. No greater loss, right? If you have a mild acquaintance, you know, you know them a little bit, and they write you off, and they condemn you, and they accuse you, and they don't want anything to do with you, it hurts. It hurts. But if you're dating somebody, and they write you off, and they accuse you, and they condemn you, they don't want anything to do with you, it's that much more hurt and pain. And if you have a family member, a parent, or a spouse, it becomes infinitely worse. That rejection becomes infinitely worse. How much more painful then is it to lose the infinite love of the Father that Jesus had from all eternity? How much more painful? Jesus' sufferings would have been eternally unbearable. Christianity doesn't provide the reason for the experience of suffering. But it does provide you Jesus. I was talking with Jeff this week and talking about how in my own life there are things that come our way and you know they're coming, right? You know that there's suffering coming and you know you have to deal with it. And the problem is is we get fixated on those things that are coming instead of fixated on who Jesus is to us in those things that come. And as we begin to turn our gaze and fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, he gives us the resources to live with hope even in the midst of awfulness. He gives us the resources. He gives us himself. It's only by his spirit that we can do that. Why has verse 28 been likened to a pillow on which we lay our weary heads? It's not all things that are working. It's not a random collocation of molecules. It's God who works. It's God who works all things together for good of those who love him. Paul shows us how God does it as he goes on. He elaborates what he meant in verse 28 by God's purpose. And God has a purpose in working all things for the good of those who love him. What is it? And he talks through it. He talks through it. He says, God foreknew. Now that's not knowing something beforehand. That's what a lot of us think about this word, right? It's not knowing something beforehand. Guys, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to gently push you on something that some of you read and, and others uh, may, may be thinking about reading. And it's not, don't hear me the wrong way. I think that there's a lot of good in this book. But the, there's a book that guys have been drawn to called Wild at Heart, right? And there is, there is a sense in which guys have lost their identity in our culture, and the book is, is good at, at pushing towards that. But do you know the reason that they give for drawing closer to God that he gives? He says that God took a chance on you. He said that God took a chance on you that you might not believe. And so therefore he's wild at heart. That's not what Paul is saying here. If taken, one of the things that's interesting about God's foreknowledge is that if it's taken without predestination, right, it, it, uh, it becomes that. It becomes exactly sort of a wild-at-heart ploy. Um, John Sight writes this. That kind of approach about foreknowledge, about it, the idea of it meaning something, knowing something beforehand, therefore knowing whether or not you would believe beforehand and then choosing you based on that. John Stott writes, it can't be right 
for two very basic reasons. If taken without predestined, then Paul is saying that God foreknows everybody and everything. But look at the passage. Paul is referring to a particular group. A particular group. And he also says, if God ends up predestining his people because they are going to believe, then the ground of their salvation is in themselves and their merit, instead of in him, God, and his mercy. Whereas Paul's whole emphasis is on God's grace and initiative, free initiative of grace. He goes on to help us. He says the Hebrew word verb in the Bible, to know, expresses much more than mere intellectual cognition. It denotes a personal relationship of care and affection. When God knows his people, he watches over them. And when he knew the children of Israel in the desert, what is meant is that he cared for them. And Paul uses the same meaning of foreknowledge in chapter 11 of Romans where he writes, God did not reject his people Israel, whom he foreknew, that is, whom he loved and chose. In light of this biblical usage, one of the old, old Westminster professors, John Murray, a theologian, very important, uh, did very important work uh, in commentaries and so forth. He wrote this. He said, No is used in a sense practically synonymous with love. Whom he foreknew is therefore virtually equivalent to whom he foreloved. Foreknowledge is sovereign, distinguishing love. Okay? So get, get the idea of what foreknowledge, what is meant by foreknowledge. Forelove. God foreloved. And then it goes on to say, he not only foreloved, but he predestined. You have to hold these two together. Now often you can take predestined, and you've heard, maybe heard people who've taken the idea of God predestined them, right? His people. Out of context of God's forelove. Out of context of a personal relationship with God. And what happens? It becomes dry. It seems arbitrary. Right? Who are you, God, to decide who gets in and who doesn't? Who are you? Why do you make this kind of decision? But when you, like Paul does here, hold God deciding beforehand together with his sovereign, distinguished, loving us beforehand, the two explode into a great comfort and affirmation. How does it do so? Well, I mean... One of the things that Paul tells us is the purpose of God deciding beforehand is practical. That we should be what? That we should be what? That we should be conformed to the image of his son. Simply put, that we should be like Jesus. God, his purpose through all of this is to make us like Jesus. To make us like Jesus. My own struggle with self-protection that I told you about. God loves me too much to leave me how I am. In myself, I just turn in on myself. and I rely on my own strength. And I have nothing but brokenness to recommend me. I can't recommend myself to God. But he can recommend me. And that knowledge can begin to transform me as I, as I learn and grow in his presence, who he is and what he's done. So he loves us too much to leave us as we are. He loves you too much to leave you as you are. One of the things that happens often when you get close to people in a relationship and you start treading on those areas where difficulty happens is that you'll hear one another say, you'll hear me say, I'm like that. I'm like that. I say to my wife all the time, I'm an introvert. I'm, I'm too sti- overstimulated right now. I just need to like walk around the block. Right? Jesus loves us too much to leave us where we are. And we can't have the excuse, I'm just like that. That excuse prevents you from drawing near to him and taking his love 
and being shaped by it and formed by it. Uh, also, the practical outflow of this is that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers, enjoying both the community of a family and the preeminence of the firstborn. I told you I was the Presbyterian retreat this weekend, this past week. It was powerful to carry our burdens together as brothers in the Lord. Do you know most of the, the guys who did this, men with years of experience, said, it felt pretty amazing to know that I'm not the only one that carries this kind of weight. Thank you for walking with me. Thank you for sharing your weight with me. And out of that came a lot of lunch dates afterwards, some phone calls, numbers exchanged. We need to do that. Jesus puts us into a family, and he's the firstborn, and he gives us rights in the family. How, how do we do it without carrying one another's burdens? How do we do it without caring enough about each other to draw near to know where we struggle, to know where to come alongside? The image of God's Son. Also, God called. Paul tells us God called. I told you, Paul's dense, so he has a lot of things that he goes over. Paul, God called. God's calling is the historical application of his eternal predestination and love. His call comes to people through the gospel. Listen to what Stott writes here. And it is when the gospel is proclaimed to them with power that they respond to it with the obedience of faith that we know God has chosen them. So, telling the others about the gospel, far from being rendered superfluous by God's predestination, is indispensable because it is the very means God has ordained by which he calls, calls, by which his call comes to people and awakens faith, a divine summons which raises the spiritually dead to life. When you share your faith with somebody, when you share the hope that you have in the gospel, you are extending eternal things through your words. There is an eternal, there's a divine summons that can happen that summons people from death to life. It's not a small thing that you're sharing your faith. And it doesn't work against predestination. It flows out of it. It flows out of the, the wonder of God's security and his love. Paul also says that God justified. Friends, you have to understand this point. When God justifies, it's more than just forgiveness or acquittal or even acceptance. It's a, it's a declaration that we sinners are now righteous in God's sight because of him giving us a righteous status, which is indeed the righteousness of Christ himself. It is in Christ, by virtue of our union with him, that we have been justified. He became sin, Paul tells us elsewhere, so that we might in him become the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. And God glorified goes hand in hand with it. Glory is the glory of God here. And when it says God glorified us, it's the manifestation of his splendor of which all sinners fall short. That means every one of us falls short of being in his presence through the glory of his splendor. All of us fall short of that. He's too great. Have you ever been in the presence of somebody great? I remember I was in college and one of my favorite guitar players of all time is John McLaughlin. He's um, a British guitar player. He played a lot of different kinds of guitars, but one of the guitars that he played was nylon string for years and years and years. And he's got fantastic technique, and just mind-blowing technique. And he played at my college, my college of music. And I stood out back. I left the concert early, and I stood out back, and I waited for him, and I waited for him, and I waited for him, and I waited for him. And eventually he came out, and he had his guitar, 
and he was well-dressed, sharp British gentleman. And uh, I saw him, and I was just like, uh. and he tried to help me out. He said, what's your name? And I had a different last name then, and uh, I told him the name, and he tried to ask me what derivation it was from and what my family lineage was, and I was just like, uh. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know how to respond in the presence of greatness. Right? So, too, in our sin, so much more we would not be able to respond in the presence of greatness. We would be undone by it. But Jesus overturns that. He overturns that. We rejoice in the hope of recovering the manifestation of God's splendor of which we fall short because of Jesus. Paul promises both that if we share Christ's sufferings, we will share in his glory in 817. It's a little earlier than the passage we're reading here. And the creation itself will one day be brought into the freedom of the glory of God's children. Our destiny is to be given new bodies in a new world, both of which will be transfigured with the glory of God. Glorified. One of the things you've got to notice as you live out of this and draw closer to God through this and try to love one another more practical ways through this, glorified is in past tense. Paul's smart. He's doing that on purpose. He's doing that on purpose, and that's something that we often miss. As a, as a Christian, it's already true, and yet to be fully true, that you are glorified right now. It's already true, past tense, and yet to be fully true. There's an already and a not yet, right? As a Christian, it's important that you see the weight of your sin. It's important that you see the weight of your sin. If you're trying to get close to God and you don't know him yet, it's important that you see the weight of your sin. You are incapable of recommending yourself. Come on, look at your life. There are all kinds of ways that you fall down. How many broken relationships have had your contribution marked on them? How many um, times during the day do you get anxious? How many times do you get angry? Jesus says that that's, that's guilty of judgment. Right? You're even angry at your brother. You're showing your sinfulness. Some of you have spent, therefore, a great deal of time sensing the weight of your sin and the need for Jesus. This is right. This is right for you and for me. This is right. We need to do that. That's part of the gospel. He had to die for you. There's no way to come to God. That's the message. He had to die for you. Right? But it isn't all the gospel. Does that surprise you? Does that surprise you? It isn't all the gospel. As a Christian, have you spent much time seeing the weight of what God has already declared to be true of you because you are now in Christ, in fellowship with his spirit, in the power of the resurrection? Have you lived out of what's already true of you? Have you let that inform your heart as well as your sinfulness? Do you understand the hope that you have in him completing that work? Do you understand where you're at in the middle of the already but not yet? Have you let the past tense of Paul's glorified what is already true of you sink in? Do you live out of the certainty of the hope that you have in Jesus' steadfast work on your behalf, so steadfast that nothing will hinder you from being transfigured with glory of God because nothing can hinder you from his love? 
Have you spent time living out of what is already true of you alongside of humbly living out of what is clearly not already true of you? You need both. You need humility and you need boldness. The gospel is not just one or the other. It's both held together. There's no other place in life where this happens. No other place. You can't be humble in it and recognize your absolute need and at the same time boldly acknowledge the identity that you've been given anywhere else in life. It's only in Jesus' work on your behalf. Are you, as Paul describes elsewhere, keeping in step with the Spirit? Are you? It's not, the gospel is not just seeing your sin and his atonement. That is an essential part of it, but it's more than that. Are you keeping in step with the Spirit and walking in line with the truth of the gospel? Have you been living out of the benefits of your salvation? Along with your humble acknowledgement of your sinfulness and utter dependence upon grace to be forgiven, they go together. Paul shows us that here. To the extent that you don't know that, you've been living an impoverished life when God wants you to live a life of freedom in him. Our namesake, liberty, God wants that for you. God wants that for you. So know your sin, but know your freedom. Luther put it this way, simultaneously sinful yet justified. Have you experienced the power of those two combining in your life? There's wonder and there's freedom in that. And it takes a tremendous amount of pressure off. Paul goes on to think it's just how certain, help us to think how certain that freedom is. And he he does it through unanswerable questions. And let's finish up with just by looking at these quickly. All right, the first question, verse 31, last part of 31. If, If God is for us, who can be against us? Not just who is against us. You notice that he didn't just leave. He doesn't ask the question, who is it that's against us? Right? He doesn't just ask that question because that would leave it wide open. He catalogs the hardships in verse 35. There's an unbelieving, persecuting world that slew Christ and slays his followers and, and Jesus promised that that would be so. Right? There's indwelling sin against us. There's death that's still an enemy, defeated but not yet destroyed. There's principalities and powers of darkness mentioned in 38 that are against us. But the key word here is if. If. If God is for us, if he has foreloved, if he has predestined, if he has called, if he has justified, if he's glorified us, this being so, this being so, then who, what, is there anything imaginable that can be against us? He leaves that question hang and he dares an answer because there is none. And he's trying to help his readers and he's trying to help you and I to get the resources we need, the results of Christ and what he's done for us, the results of his spirit living in us through faith in him to transform us. Where do we go? God is for us and not against us. He's for us. He's for us. All the powers of hell may set themselves against us, but they can never prevail. Why? God is on our side in Christ. It's finished, Christ had said. And that's the hope that you go into life with. But question two, he asks, who did not, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Paul points us to the cross. Now let's look at this quickly, negatively and positively. Negatively, he did not spare his own son. It's negative. What? You didn't spare your own son? You've got to think. 
This was a people of the book, even back then. Paul was a person of the book, even back then. There are echoes of Abraham here. You have not withheld or spared your son, your only son, God said to Abraham. There's echoes of that. Christ is the fulfillment of that. It shows a tremendous amount of devotion and love. It shows all devotion and love. But positively, not just negatively, God gave him up for us all. The same verb is used in the Gospels when Judas, the priest, and Pilate who handed Jesus over to his death. One person wrote it this way, who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the religious leaders for envy, but the Father for love. He handed him over for us all. He handed them over. Paul argues from the greater to the lesser, namely that since God has already given us the supreme and costliest gift of his own son, how can he fail to lavish every other gift upon us? In giving us his son, he's given us everything. You know that hymn that we sing? Were all of creation mine? That would be a gift far too small. Part of learning how to think out of the truths of the gospel and the riches that we have in the faith is to realize the greatness of Jesus' gift, of God's gift in himself, in the person of his son on our behalf. The cross is the continued guarantee of the unfailing generosity of God. He asks another question. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies, verse 33. He comes into a court of law scene, Paul, in his language here, and he says there's not a prosecutor alive or has been alive or who will be alive whose prosecution will stand. There's not one. There's not one. Paul is echoing the words of the servant, the suffering servant in Isaiah 50, 8 through 9. Again, a person of the book, and this is what he's echoing. Isaiah 58 through 9 says, He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. How, how is my accuser? Who is it? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who is he who will condemn me? Paul goes on. No, question, no answers for any of these questions. And he goes on and he says, He says, Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us in 34. Christ died for the very sins that would otherwise deserve condemnation. He died for them. Jonathan Edwards was so bold to say, it would be unjust of God to require two payments when such a full payment was made. How full... Is Jesus' payment for you? It's complete. There's no more payment. You can't do it. You don't need to do it. You can rest on the payment that's been made. Christ died for the very sins that would condemn us. But instead, God condemns sin, our sin, in the humanity of Jesus. And so Christ has redeemed us from the curse or condemnation of the law by becoming cursed for us. Again, there is more than that in the saving work of Christ. After death, Jesus was raised to life. Jesus was raised to life. It's not just that he rose, but that he was raised by the Father who demonstrated his acceptance of the sacrifice of his Son. And, and that's why it's the only reason that we can be justified. Jesus' sacrifice is the only one God accepts. 
and he did it in our place. He's also at the right hand of God, Jesus is, resting from his finished work, occupying the place of supreme honor, exercising his authority to save, and waiting for his final triumph. He is also, Paul says, interceding for us. He's our very heavenly advocate and high priest. His very presence at the Father's right hand is evidence of his completed work of atonement. And his intercession means that he continues to secure for his people the benefits of their salvation. He continues right now to secure all the benefits that can never be taken from you. If you go to him through his work and not through your own. His very presence at the Father's right hand is evidence of his completed work, of atonement, of his intercession. He continues to secure. Who condemns? There's no answer. God draws that to our attention. Paul draws that to our attention. And then he asks, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No pain, no misery, no loss can separate us from his love. Paul dares to claim more than that. He, he, he dares to claim that we're more than conquerors. What does that mean? It's not that it's just the word conquerors in Christ. We're more than that. For we not only bear with them our trials with fortitude, but we triumph over them. And so are winning a most victorious glory, victory through him who loved us. Christ proved his love for us by sufferings, and our sufferings cannot possibly separate us from it. John Stott concludes this way. Listen, and we'll pray together. This is the love of God which was supremely displayed in the cross, which has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which has drawn out from us our responsive love and which in its essential steadfastness will never let us go since it is committed to bringing us safe home to glory in the end. Our confidence is not in our love for him, which is frail, fickle, and faltering, but in his love for us, which is steadfast, faithful, and persevering. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints needs to be renamed. It is the doctrine of the perseverance of God with the saints. Let me know Let me know more my comfort draw from my frail hold on thee. In this alone rejoice with awe thy mighty grasp of me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you have not only um, given up your only son who knew you and had fellowship with you from before all eternity, but that you uh, rose him again from the dead and that that you, Lord Jesus, intercede right now because you rose, you ascended, you sit at your Father's right hand, you are one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you send your Spirit to testify with our hearts that there's hope, that we're not left to ourselves, that we're not left to our own sinfulness, that we're not left to our circumstances, that even those, even those are being right now worked out for good because of your great grace and love to us. Dear Lord Jesus, be present with us as we go into the rest of our week. Be present with us and remind us of your great love. Remind us that therefore there's now no condemnation for those who love you. Remind us that there's nothing in heaven and earth, there's nothing in all creation who can take away the victory of the Creator on their behalf. Let us look more and more because of your strength formed in us 
like we are those who you've made new. We don't depend on our own strength for that, Father, but we do depend on yours and we ask for it now. It's in your name we pray. Amen.